Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning. Long time no see. I'm over on the east side, and all is well over there. Come visit us. So, uh, speaking of the east side, so, you know, in the fall, we're hoping to get to mornings, possibly. We've got some, uh, some facilities that we're looking at, and God is doing amazing work. We had a potluck last week, and I was just blown away at you know, we, we meet at seven, uh, six o'clock uh, in the evenings on Sunday, and the weather uh, at six o'clock in the summer is not good. We have no air conditioning. But it's been amazing to see how God has been growing this, not just in numbers, but growing this in, in terms of diversity. And so it's been a really neat work God's doing. So if you've ever got time to come out and check out Eastside Campus, we welcome you. Um, there's this piece, and I don't, I'm not here to make a political statement here, but there's this piece in George Bush's book, (laughs) Decision Points. And I just, I remember the picture and, um, he talks about in the book, this one regrettable moment he had in his presidency. And that one regrettable moment in his presidency was As he's flying over Hurricane Katrina, they took a picture of him in Air Force One looking over um, the carnage, the the destruction of buildings, the carnage of people. And uh, I remember that picture because many people said that it made him look aloof and distant from the everyday struggles of ordinary people. And as I try this morning to unpack the book of James, I think what happens oftentimes is, is that James is not so concerned about sort of this 35,000 view. Uh, What James is more concerned about is, is what does theology, what does the gospel look like in our everyday life? What does it look like in our neighborhood? What does it look like in our community? What does it look like in our family? And the gospel isn't cold, it isn't aloof. It isn't detached from the daily struggles and realities that we face in our life, that it comes and descends down into our world, but it can only truly be fleshed out as it's embodied within a community. And so James is not so concerned about uh, me and Jesus individually. What James is more concerned about is us and Jesus collectively. And so what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at the book of James in James chapter 3, at the end of James 3 and the beginning of James 4 is, is that we're going to look at what community looks like. What are some of the features of community? So if you've got a Bible with you, turn with me to James chapter 3, in verse, starting in verse 13. James 3, verse 13. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. 
But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Chapter four, what causes fight and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with motives, with wrong motives, that you spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Father, I pray for your grace this morning as we look at this passage. May you speak to us um, as a church community uh, and help us grow. May these scriptures come alive and minister and go deep inside of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. When scholars and theologians talk about words, they'll talk about words having, particularly in the Bible, a lexical range. And what they mean is, is that words have broad variations of meaning. So if you took this word right here in verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace a harvest of righteousness, if you took the word righteousness, righteousness can mean a few things. One, it can mean a legal forensic um, righteousness which describes our standing before God. It talks about all of the work that God has done to make us right in him. It's a legal standing. It's what God does to declare us his. And so when he looks at you uh, in his son, he no longer holds you hostage for your sin because of what Jesus did on your behalf. That is legal forensic righteousness. It has nothing to do with you. But there's another kind of righteousness, and it's called social righteousness. And this kind of righteousness is not so much concerned about your standing before God. It's more concerned about your standing before each other, right? There's, there's righteousness before God. It's my legal standing before him. I'm impacted. My life is transformed. And as a result of that, I enter into a community and I begin to practice social righteousness, right? My interaction with other people. And this is what James is. He's not talking about, in the book of James, he's not talking about saving faith. He is talking about transforming faith. It's not about faith that is created by works. It's a faith that is produced, right? It's a, it's a, it's a faith that um, is an extension of our work. Um, and so what James is talking about here is, is that in order for us to truly grow in our faith, um, we're gonna have to, that faith is gonna have to be embodied within the context of a community. Now the interesting thing here is that no better place than this kind of community to get off the ground and lived out than in verse 18. Because when he talks about righteousness, he likens this kind of righteousness to a harvest, a crop. 
Now, what does a harvest or a crop need? It needs seed in order for that crop to grow. What is the seed that James is talking about here in verse 18? The seed, he says, is peacemaking. Now, when he talks about peacemaking, he's not talking about the reconciliation between two people. Actually, the Greek word, the lexical range of this word, this peacemaking word, is to be one, to be in harmony, right? Collectively as a group. And so what he's saying is, is that in order for you to truly grow and to produce this kind of social righteousness in your life, you're going to have to be in a community. You're going to have to be working toward harmony and unity and, and growth as a, as a body. And this is what Dr. Martin Luther King was getting at, right? In the beloved community, right? This reconciliation of all these different groups that think, act, and have different experiences in different cultures. How do they live in this beloved community? This was Josiah Royce in the Fellowship of Reconciliation. How do you bring all these cultures and races and nations of people together to get along at the fellowship and to have something beyond themselves? This is what he's talking about. So, so in order for us to grow, it has to happen as we're rubbing shoulders, as we're living face to face, as we're doing life on life engagement, as the scripture says, iron sharpens iron, we have got to be in each other's life. I've said this many times that I came here to Imago simply because I knew I needed to grow. I knew I needed to be in a community. I knew I could not exist alone. I needed somebody pushing against my life. I remember one time in one of my pastoral stints, um, a lady was reaching out to me and she, she was emailing me a ton and my schedule got busy and I hadn't really responded. And finally I said, all right, let's connect at this particular day and time. And uh, I was in a church and I've always done this work of reconciliation. And so we met in my office uh, in between some of the services and she sat down and very wholesome, Christianly, godly looking woman had a bunch of kids married, looked like a soccer mom, and she happens to be white. And I'm sitting there in my living room having this, uh, wondering what was such the urgency of this conversation, and she looks at me, she goes, I just wanna know, when are you, he said, when, I, I, no, she said this, I wanna know, when will your folks, your people, black people, repent for all the harm and pain you've created and cause white folks. And I said, come again? She said, I wanna know when will you and your folks acknowledge all the pain and hurt and suffering that you've caused us? I, look, I've been in counseling a long time. I've never been asked that question. And so I'm sitting there asking her, and now my blood is starting to boil, right? And now I said, now why do you ask that question? And when I started to get inside of her story, I learned that she had been raped by an African-American man. She had been put in prison for nine years, and she said that the African-American female population in the prison were awful to her. And so her race shrunk, and the race she encountered got large, and she had internalized it, and that had been her story. And so what do I do? Because I am now on staff, called to pastor this woman, 
And yet I know that I'm also called to be a social justice advocator at the same time. So she's hurting and I'm hurting and it's at that point that I realized that sanctification growth was gonna happen, not just in her, but in me. Right, that we were gonna enter into each other's story and as we entered into each other's story, our own shared narrative, and we entered into each other's pain, I'm certain as we walked out of that room and did a little bit of clarifying on both ends, we were both changed. But that transformation isn't gonna happen unless she sits in my office and says, when are you guys going to repent? And it's at that moment God began to work on my heart. And obviously I gave her education about our history. (laughs) And I debunked the ideal of equivocation in terms of pain, but at the same time, I was called to pastor this woman and enter into the story so that we could grow together. This is peace making. We are not a product of our, of our rationality. We're a product of relationship. Like you are who you are. It isn't because the books you read, the degrees you have, right? Like the city you live in. You are a product of the people that you hang out with, the people you were raised by, the people that spoke truth into your life, the people that you rub shoulders with. That is who you are. And social scientists will tell you that. The Bible definitely will tell you that. In fact, I was just reading an article about a retail CEO who's worth $840 million who lives in Las Vegas in a trailer park. This was yesterday, I'm reading this article, and this is what one of the trailer park people said about him. They said money doesn't matter that much to him. He would just be happy with a dollar in the bank and being around people he cares about and care about him. What kind of community is God calling us to? Because in the end, this is it. He's saying, look, if you want to practice this kind of righteousness, this kind of righteousness, the seed of it is peacemaking. Right? It's deep, it's deep involvement into a community. Now, the problem is, is that we're Western thinkers. We're rugged individuals, right? We're told that you can be whatever you want to be. And yet the Bible comes along and counters that. It comes along and counters that Western mindset that says, you know, we are an extension of whoever we want to be apart from other people. And the Bible says, no, you are who you are because of other people. Now, oftentimes we walk through these doors and we hear a great sermon. There's two people that come here walk through these doors, they hear great sermons. One person comes, repents, gives their life to to Jesus, and their life is transformed. Another person comes through the door, hears inspirational preaching, feels good about the preaching, walks out feeling better, but their life isn't changed. The beauty of the gospel is, is that that you won't be transformed. Like you won't grow. apart from what I keep banging away, this whole notion of community. But the only way community happens isn't just because you come in here and repent. Now I'm saying you can come in here and repent, give your life to Jesus, but you won't grow in your life unless you are living with other people in the context of 
doing life together with them. Right? Like you can come in here and hear a sermon and feel good about the sermon and walk away inspired, but that doesn't mean that your besetting sins are going to be overcome. It doesn't mean your attitudes are going to change. It just means that you feel good every time you come in and hear a good sermon. Now, the true transformation that happens in our life is when we are intimately involved in each other's life. It's when we're deconstructing each other's assumptions about life and the way we think and do things. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, admonish and confront one another. Romans 14, 15 says, warn one another, but we are to stop being fake with one another, as one translation goes. Romans 12, 9 says, love must be sincere. Hate with what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, my question is, admonish and confront one another, warn one another, stop being fake with one another. My question is, how in the world could that be lived out right here on a Sunday morning? I would suggest that a lot of that can't because we don't truly know each other. The only way that's going to happen is when we actually make an intentional effort to get involved in each other's lives so that this stuff can get flashed out. And so no supernatural change in your life, no growth, no transformation without this kind of peacemaking. And that kind of peacemaking can only happen as the Holy Spirit works with inside your soul as you're deeply connected to other people. And that's how it happens. Now, what stands in the way of this community, which is my second point? What gets in, what subverts, what gets in the way of this kind of community? Well, look with me in chapter uh, four, verse one and four. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And then verse four says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What is this enemy of God and who's this enemy of God and how can we be enemies of God? Because somehow that is connected to being friends with the world. Well, there's two ways that we enter into a community. The first way that I talked about is, is that, you know, like it's through peacemaking, right? It's through deeply involvement inside of a community where you're doing life on life engagement. But what happens oftentimes that, conf- that stands in the way of that is that we can be detached, we can be aloof, we can decide that we don't wanna be in that kind of community. We may have been hurt by a community. Like we bring all kind of pain and struggle uh, as it pertains to relating to other people that we accumulated throughout the, our whole life that stands in the way of us really deeply being plugged in to um, the life of a church community. But the second way is, and this is what James says, is, is that <laughs> that can dismantle a community is just straight fighting. That's what he says, right? He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Verse four, do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Enmity means hostility, animosity, fighting. So he's saying fighting can be another way of standing in the way of this kind of community of peacekeeping or peacemaking. And there's a lot of fights that we have, right? Like we're trying to do this multicultural church. We're trying to be more inclusive. We're trying to open the floodgates and create access for all kinds of people. And you know what happens, right? We start fighting over music. We fight over cultural tastes, right? 
We fight over who likes to listen to, who we like to listen to, and who we don't like to listen to. I know some of you don't like listening to me, that's okay. I know some of you walk through this door and you're disappointed when you don't see Pastor Rick preaching. That's completely okay. But we need not war over it, we need not fight over it, right? But this is the hard work of gospel-centered peacekeeping. So he says in verse two, he says, the reason we fight right here, he says you desire but do not have, so you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. That word want, the Greek word is hedone, which is where we get the word hedonism. And hedonism is just basically pleasing oneself. It's putting your needs over the interest of someone else's needs, right? Like, like there was this point in church growth where it was all about meeting felt needs. And so people came to church and it was all about, you know, do they have a good children's ministry and a good youth ministry? And are they going to serve me and my family and my needs? You know what I'm saying? Like that is not counterintuitive, right? That is counter to the gospel. The gospel is an upside down kingdom. That is hedone, that is hedonism, that is just pleasing oneself or one's marriage or one's kids or whatever. Instead of being served, how about serving? And this is the kingdom. In John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said this as he was praying to his father. He says, Father, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I and them, you and me, may they be brought to the complete oneness that the world might know that you have sent me. This is how God exists, right? Like, if, like when we look in Genesis chapter one, it says, come let us make man in our image, right? Like God lives in usness and he calls us to live in usness because to live in usness is to bear out the very image that God has wired us to be. And how does God function within himself? Well, this is what Jesus is praying. You see how it is, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit living and existing for each other, both of them glorying in the, in the other, right? And God says, if you really want to live out the way you've been wired, this is how you do it. You do it the way God does it. And the way God does it is, is that he never lives for himself. It's never about felt need, right? It's always about loving the other. It is always about, right, uh, considering the other. It's about living for the other. That's how the Trinity functions within itself, and this is how a church functions when it's within itself. And to turn that thing in our heart on its head, we have got to press harder into who Jesus is, harder into who God is, to live out this kind of community that bears forth the witness that God wants it to bear out. And so it confronts, it confronts um, this way of living. And it forces us to make choices in our life in terms of how we choose to live. And so we can either say, I'm gonna live this way, my life for yours, which means it's not about me, but it's about you. I'm gonna die to self so that you benefit, right? It's not about, it's not about head on and me, right? It's not about cultural taste. If you, man, if this music ministers to you, let it ministers to you. I remember we were doing a Waterhouse gathering and um, Waterhouse is one of our church planning networks. And one of our focus is being diverse, right? Like helping plant multicultural churches. So one of our events, we bring in this very soulful, urban gospel, black, older school 
worship team, and they lead some of the oldest 80s and 90s music you have ever heard in your life, but they put their twist on it, right? They put their foot in it, right, when they play it. It doesn't sound, I mean, Hosanna doesn't sound the way we would sing Hosanna, right? And I remember sitting there next to Rick, and, and he turns to me and he goes, what's the deal with all these oldies but goodies? And then about 10 minutes later, I kind of laughed because I kept worshiping. And about 10 minutes later, I turn over to Rick and he's got both hands. And you know how supernatural that is to see Rick with two hands worshiping. And tears coming down Pastor Rick's. And at the end, he goes, man, at the first, I just thought this was like the good old oldies. And he goes, but something happened. And at that moment, man, I saw that this was ministering to a group of people um, And it forced me to jump in. And as I jumped in, something happened in my heart. This was a beautiful exchange between he and I. But that is living my life for yours. You know what I'm saying? Like parents, you understand that. Like if you decide you're gonna have kids, you you just understand for the next 18 years, your life is not your own. But you sign up to give your life completely and utterly away. Right? They own you. They own your heart. They own your pocketbook. They own everything. You know what I'm saying? But that is my life for yours. My life for yours. Or you can fight and quarrel and be like the world. And it can be my life for me. Right? Come on, married folks, you you know, right? Like, if I jump into a marriage and the goal is for my spouse to make me happy, that's not going to be good. It's not going to be a good look. The goal of a marriage is not to get happiness, it's to bring it. Like finding happiness in my wife's happiness. When two people are committed to that kind of happiness and they push beyond this, my life for me, mantra that says, you know, when we said this vow, you were supposed to do X, Y, and Z. You're supposed to meet what no one else has been able to meet. When you get into that mindset, you turn that marriage into something very disastrous. And so James is calling us to this kind of peacekeeping that says, my life for yours, my life for yours. And it's hard and it's a struggle and it ain't easy, (laughs) never easy. But this is what God has called us to. So, what do we stand to gain in this kind of community as I close? Well, simple. Look with me in verse 13 of James 3 as we close. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly. 
Verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Do you see what this verse is saying? Well, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, who is wise and understanding? What it actually says is, is who is wise and understanding among you? In other words, knowledge is, is the accumulation of information. Wisdom is knowing how to apply that information. And so what James is saying is, is that this is not, look, community is not about just getting knowledge. I've been in side communities where it's just nothing more than uh, this is what this verse means to me, Bible study. Or it's uh, a Bible study that just goes into the word of God but doesn't open one's life. What he's saying is this, he's saying, look, you should be gaining wisdom, but that kind of wisdom can only happen among you. It can only happen in community. When I work on sermons, I am not the guy that has a stack of books and I'm on my laptop and I'm trying to pull snazzy quotes and trying to find little quotes in my book and I'm locked away. I remember when I was in seminary, they said that you needed to spend 30, 40 hours a week working on your sermon. I'm not a hermit. I just, I don't flow like that, right? My best points, my best illustrations, the thoughts that I usually accrue typically happen when I'm having a cup of coffee or eating lunch with somebody and they're giving me a point and they don't even know it. It's because of that life on life that, we're, that, these type, that kind of wisdom happens. You see, wisdom has a sort of a holistic approach to it because when community, when you jump into a community, the kind of community that James is talking about, he's talking about an integrated life, like your life becomes wise. Like you are in deeply involved in other people's life and they are deeply involved in your life and there's a certain kind of way of applying truth and understanding truth. What you stand to gain is a kind of wisdom that comes as an extension of the community that you're a part of. Now, the kind of wisdom that James is against is this worldly wisdom where it says, you harbor bitterness, envy, selfish ambition in verse 14. Do not boast about it, deny the truth. He says, such wisdom, in other words, there's an appearance of wisdom. It says it does not come from heaven, but is earthly. What's wrong with this kind of wisdom? Well, it's this kind of wisdom that you have, and yet at the same time, you're holding all this bitterness and selfishness and envy in one's heart, like you're wise, but you have no self-discovery, right? You have no self-awareness about, you ever been around somebody that just absolutely has no self-awareness? Like you're trying to point stuff out in their life, they do not get it, and yet they talk to you like they know everything, right? Like James is debunking this kind of wisdom, like the pure wisdom, the kind of wisdom that comes from, from above is a kind of wisdom that creates a certain level of purity and peace-loving, consideration and submissiveness and full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and being sincere. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle with any of that stuff. It's present in your life, but you know that about you, 
right? You know that you can succumb to that kind of temptation. You know that kind of evil is present in your life. You know that you can be an idiot at times, right? You know that you are not susceptible, that you're susceptible to falling and stumbling, right? You know you don't put yourself in certain circumstances because you know you can't handle that, right? It's this kind of wisdom that God creates inside of a community that you get plugged in that helps you navigate life in a way that you can never navigate it's living in this siloed life compartmentalized away from other people. Notice this kind of wisdom that happens in one's life, right? He says, peace loving. Look, you can't be peace loving unless you have somebody robbing you of that peace. That's how you grow in peace loving, right? You can't grow in consideration until you're around someone that knows how to be inconsiderate, right? Somebody needs to push against that. That's how you grow in it. Right? You can't pray about growing in patience unless you have somebody trying that patience, right? This is how we grow. This is how we become wise. This is how our heart is transformed. This is how we are true agents that are peacemaking. This is how a community is formed. This is how a, a sage is born. This is how someone becomes astute spiritually. So my question to you this morning is this, who is pushing against your life? Not just your wife, not just your husband, not just your business. Who's pushing against your life? You know why celebrities are crazy? because they surround themselves or put, them, put people around themselves that tell them what they want to hear. Who's pushing against you the other way? Who's telling you no? Who puts their foot down in your life? Who are you submitted to? Who is pushing against your instinct? Who's pushing against the proclivity that drives you in a way that does not glorify God? Without that, we don't grow. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace today. We thank you that you've called us to be peacekeepers, but we can't do that without your work. We know that supernatural change in our heart doesn't happen apart from community. So today, would you speak to our heart? Would you cause us to reevaluate our relationships? May we ask the harder questions about who do we let in and, and who don't we let in to our lives and why. Today, God, we, we pray for your work in our life. As we come to the communion table and partake of the bread and wine, we thank you that 
The communion table represents the body and blood of Jesus who died on the cross for this peculiar community, this diverse community, this community that would be in so ensconced in each other's life that true transformation and true witness would happen. And so as we come to the communion table today, may we experience your love, your community, and may we use it as a time to evaluate who we let in. And so we pray today, may your grace fill our lives. May shame be eradicated and may we be liberated because we we are in you, in Jesus' name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amargodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.